All right, it's been a while since we've been in John, about three weeks, so let me remind you. It's the last week of, or last night of Jesus' life. He's washed the feet of his disciples. He's predicted that he will be betrayed. Judas is left, so now he's just got the remaining, the, the, the faithful 11, we'll call them. And he's been preparing them for his departure. Both immediately, he's about to be arrested and crucified, and that's going to be a shock to them. And then 40 days after his resurrection, he's going to ascend to heaven and send the Holy Spirit in his place. So he's been talking on both of those levels. The disciples are kind of getting it, not really. But then at the end, at the the close of chapter 16, he finally hears the words that he's been waiting to hear for the last three years. And those words are these in the mouth of these disciples. This makes us believe that you came from God. This makes us believe that you came from God. John said he wrote the whole book of John so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we'd have life in his name. These 11 disciples, after three years of being with Jesus, have now said, we believe that you come from God. And then Jesus says to them, I'm, that's, that's good, and there are going to be other people who believe even though they haven't seen, but you're, y'all are about to scatter, and you're going to leave me, and you're going to have trouble in the world. And those two ideas lead Jesus into prayer. It's the longest recorded prayer we have in the Bible on the lips of Jesus. The confession of, the, of these disciples, we believe that, you're the, that you come from God, and then Jesus' word to them that they're all about to be scattered and that they're going to experience trouble. What comes out of that? Your Bible may call it the high priestly prayer. It's the longest, again, it's the longest recorded prayer we have of Jesus. We're going to look at the first third of it this morning. So after Jesus said this about them experiencing trouble but taking heart because he's overcome the world, he looked towards heaven and he prayed. And this is how he prayed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you've given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. We'll pause there. After that, Jesus starts to pray for his 11 disciples. So for Jesus, the three years of his public ministry, he's been working towards moving towards this hour. The hour, that's when he'll be crucified and when he'll be raised from the dead. Both of those things are kind of collapsed together. And Jesus says, now's the time. And so then his, his request to the Father is, glorify me so that I may glorify you. This reciprocal relationship, Father glorifies the Son, Son glorifies the Father. What does it mean to glorify, to exalt, to honor, to draw attention to? So Jesus is saying, you do that for me, Father, and I'll do that for you. There's lots of ways the Father glorifies the Son and the Son glorifies the Father, but Jesus gives us a couple here in this passage. So how does the Father glorify the Son? For you, Father, granted him, that's Jesus, authority over all people. Why? So that he might give eternal life to all those you have given to him. So Jesus says the way the Father glorifies the Son is by giving him authority over all people, 
so the Son can then give eternal life to the ones the Father gives to him. So who is the Father given to the Son? Some people see in that uh, kind of an individual slant or an individual leaning. They would say out of the 120 billion people God has created over time, he selects individuals. And he calls them, these individuals, he calls them into relationship with himself through Jesus. It's, very, it's, a, it's an individual uh, giving, if you will. I don't see that. I see it as corporate. In John 6, 40, Jesus says, The will of the Father is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. That's the Father's will, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. So I think what Jesus is saying is, Father, you've, given, you've glorified me by giving me authority over all people, and then all of the ones who are looking to me and believing in me, you've given me those guys, and I'm giving them eternal life. Now, we know that salvation always is initiated by God. We're always responding to him. We always go second. We never go first. So when we look to Jesus, it's because the Holy Spirit has first tapped on our shoulder and responding. God always initiates. So that there's this group of people, in my, my opinion, it's a group of people. And Jesus says, I'm glorifying you, or Father, you're glorifying me by giving me this group, everyone who's looked at me and believed in me. And I'm giving them eternal life. And then Jesus defines eternal life. I'm not a big memorizer, but this is one worth memorizing. I think this is one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. It's the only place I know where eternal life is defined really explicitly. Where Jesus says, this is eternal life. Here's the definition. Knowing you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent. That's the definition of eternal life. It's relational. Now, we can fall into some ditches, well-meaning. There's some truth in either side, but uh, our language at times can cause us to, to miss the heart of salvation, which is relationship. We talk about going to heaven, like heaven is a place on a map. It's geographical. Here's the place where heaven is, and I'm going to go there. And there are these big gates, and Peter's sitting out in front of them, and he's got a book, and if my name's in the book, then the gates open, and I get to go in and experience paradise, whatever that is, with my pets and all of the people that I love, and that's, that's what we're doing. And it's way better than, me, than the other option, where I, where I would be going. There is some truth there, but that idea of heaven as a place, this physical place on a map where we're going, it can push God out to the periphery. God made this place for me, but this place is really about me and the paradise that I'm going to enjoy. And God fades to the background. Eternal life is a gift. That's true. It's given to us. But we can begin to think like we do about all other presents. It's wrapped under the tree, and we get it, and we unwrap it, and we pull it out of the box, and we have this thing called eternal life that becomes ours, and we put it in our pocket, and we can carry it around. We possess it. We own it. And again, there's some truth there, but where that can lead pretty quickly is we lose sight of the one who's given it to us. And eternal life is this thing that I have. God gave it to me. Heaven is this place that I go that God prepared for me. But in neither one of those pictures is God dominant. Jesus says, hey, I want you to know eternal life is all about relationship. It's about knowing the Father and knowing the Son. If your picture of eternal life, if your picture of heaven, if your picture of salvation is not majoring on relationship with God, 
you're mistaken. And what it means to go to heaven, what it means to be saved, what it means to receive eternal life. It's all about relationship. The cross is the means to an end. Forgiveness is the means to an end. The way Jesus gives us eternal life, it's not a gift wrapped under the tree. Sin separates us from God. Jesus' death forgives us of our sins. So now we can be restored to relationship. The end is restored relationship. Forgiveness, the cross, is the means to the end. What God has always desired is to adopt us into his family as sons and daughters, and that's a relationship that never ends. We don't graduate out of that. We don't mature out of that. We don't grow out of that. And so when you think about eternal life, when you think about salvation, what I hope you think about is family. What I hope you think about is being reconciled to your father forever, living in increasing knowledge and understanding and intimacy with him. That's what eternal life is. It's the only definition I see in the book. You may find another one. That's the only one that I see in the New Testament. This is eternal life. Knowledge, not this is eternal life. This destination. There's a, there's a geographic component. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. But what makes those things those things is the presence of God in our interaction with him. Eternal life is a gift that God gives to us, and he gives it to us so that we can spend forever with him. Eternal life is relationship with the Father and the Son. That's how the Father glorifies the Son. Then Jesus says, and here's how I'm going to glorify you. I glorify you by fin- on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Finishing the work you gave me to do. He doesn't say exactly what the work is. He just says, by finishing it. And then there's this kind of aside, and now he flips it back on himself. Father, glorify your son, or, or bring me glory, by returning to me the glory that I experienced when I was with you. So this is what I think. I think Jesus has two things in mind when he says, I finished the work. One is something he's already accomplished, and one is something he's about to accomplish, but he's already committed to it. The, that's the cross. The cross is still in the future for him, just a few hours in the future, but it's in the future, but he's already decided I'm, that's what I'm doing. I'm going to go die. And so I think he's saying, I've finished the work you've given me. Again, that's, that's still future, but it's settled in his mind. He knows it's going to happen. He's accepted that, and I think he's kind of looking past that. You've gone through a time in your life that was really hard. Maybe you were overwhelmed at work. Maybe you had relational difficulties. But you could see kind of the light at the end of the tunnel. That's what we say. Can you see the light at the end of the tunnel? Can you see the day when this is going to be over? Can you, can you see the finish line? And for some of us, when we get in those stretches of life, we've got to look up a little bit, and we look down the road, and we can see it's going to end, and that encourages us in the midst of that difficult time. I think that's what Jesus is doing. I think he knows he's about to be separated from his father. He's about to become sin on our behalf. And before he does that, he kind of lifts his head up and he sees where he's going. And I think that's what he's talking about. Philippians 2, some people say, is the oldest hymn ever. First hymn, oldest Christian hymn ever. And it has this, there's this flow to it. You have Jesus descending and then Jesus ascending. When Jesus stepped into Mary's uterus, he laid aside some of his divine attributes. He was no longer omniscient. He was no longer omnipresent. He he, he couldn't be 
everywhere. He was one place, one time, just like us. He was no longer omnipotent. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He got tired. He was still fully God, but he laid aside some of the privileges of being God. And now he's on the doorstep of this first and only separation from his father ever. Again, actually become bottom of the barrel for him. I think he looks up and he says, but I'm looking forward to my ascension. I'm looking forward to the day where all of the things that I laid aside willingly and lovingly in order to become a human, I'm looking forward to taking those things up again. I'm looking forward to that glory again. And I think that's maybe, again, that's just part of kind of stealing himself for what he's about to face. And then he shifts. The other way that he brings glory to the Father, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. Those are the disciples. So Jesus brings glory to the Father by finishing the work the Father's given him to do. One, that's the cross. Still future, but sure bet he's already committed to it. Second, by revealing the Father to those whom the Father gave him out of the world, the disciples. And then he goes through this thing, they were yours, you gave them to me, they've obeyed your word, they know that everything you've given me comes from you, I gave them the words you gave me, they accepted them, they knew with certainty that I came from you, that seems like a strong statement based on what we know of the disciples, and they believe that you sent me. So he's hinging all of that on those few words that we saw at the end of chapter 16. When they say, this makes us believe that you came from God. It's like, that's what, those are the words he's been waiting to hear. And he heard them. And so now he's saying, Father, look, mission accomplished. I did what you asked me to do. I've revealed you to these people. We'll talk about Judas next week. I've revealed you to these 11 people, and they have responded. They recognize the words that I say and the things that I'm doing. They all come from you, and they recognize, so do I, that I'm the one who's been sent by you. So for us... If Jesus glorified the Father by finishing the work that the Father gave him to do, so it is with us. We glorify the Father by finishing the work he's given us to do. One of our core verses as a church, Ephesians 2.10, that God has created good works in advance for us to do. One of the ways that we bring glory to the Father is by finishing those good works. And so the question for each one of us is, Am I aware and are you aware of what those good works are? If you bring glory to the Father by finishing the assignment that he's given you, by finishing the tasks that he's given to you, it'd be helpful to know what that assignment is and what those tasks are. That can feel like, wait, I don't know, and am I failing? Am I disappointing God? Am I not glorifying him? Don't hear any of that. His job is to reveal that to you. Yours is just to respond to him, a big category. So Jesus said, I revealed your name to the ones that you gave me. So maybe you can try to apply that to your own life. What does it look like for you to reveal the Father to the people God has given to you? What does it look like for you to reveal the Father to the people God has given to you? And you may say, I don't have any people. You ain't giving me anybody. Two things you can think about. Where have you been planted Think metaphorically there. Don't think about where, where, where's the dirt that God has given to you. Russell, who opened our service, and he made the joke about being our janitor. He also is a pastor at Dwell Apartments. He and his wife, Megan, have started a house church in that apartment complex on Franklin Road. So for him, there's a very clear sense of geography. 
It's the dwell apartments on Franklin Road, not the Castle Lake apartments on Franklin Road or the dwell apartments on Austell Road. It's the dwell apartments on Franklin Road. That's his dirt. You have dirt too. There's a place where God has planted you. Can you name that? And then maybe the second question is, who are the people whom God has sent you to? So where has he planted you, and to whom has he sent you? Again, Russell and Megan can say it's the families. It's the people who live in these, these apartment buildings. That's whom he sent us to. It doesn't mean that they don't try to love other people or talk to other people or engage with other people, but their primary energy is these are our people. We give ourselves to them. Who are your people? Maybe people within your own home, for sure, but there'll be others as well. Who are the people to whom God has sent you? It may be a a specific group, the people who live at Dwell Apartments. These people who are in my office. Other people whose kids play the same sport as mine. Other people who are on this, a part of this club that I'm in. Whatever. Who are the people to whom God has sent you? If you can identify those two things, where have I been planted and to whom have I been sent? Then the question you just begin to ask the Lord is, well, God, what does it look like for me to reveal you? to them here, to these people in this place. What does it look like for me to reveal your name or to reveal you, your Bible may say your name, to these people in this place? And you just do what he says. Now remember, Jesus is talking about these disciples and we've been looking at them for a long time. They are not pillars of faithfulness at this point. And they're all about to bail. So, He's hanging a lot on this one statement. Now we believe that you come from God. So you don't have to think about having anything super impressive to present to God to say, see, I finished. See, I completed it. It doesn't have to be footnoted and annotated. It doesn't have to be something on your trifold board that somebody can come by and give you a blue ribbon. It's just you being faithful to the tasks that God has given to you. Just doing the best you can in the power of the Spirit to reveal the Father in the place where he's planted you, to the people to whom he sent you. One other thing I want you to think about as we wrap up, that first word in the prayer, Father. It's trite, cliche for us. We know God is our Father. When you pray, I wonder how you address him. Do you say God? Do you say Lord? Do you say Jesus? No, those are wrong. I just wonder how many of us recognize and live in the reality that the one true God is our Father, and how much things would change for us if we began to live that way. In Exodus 3, Moses asked God, what what is your name? And God says, I am who I am. And we've understood that to be Yahweh, Y-W-H-W. There are no vowels in Hebrew, so we've stuck the vowels in there as best we know. So Yahweh, and so if, if his name is I am, then we call him He is. First person I am, third person, because we're the Hebrews and then the Jews, they, they quit using that name. They didn't call Yahweh Yahweh because they didn't want to break the third command. The third command is don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So if the name of the Lord my God is Yahweh and I don't want to take that in vain, well, if I never say it, then I can never break that command. I can't take the name of Yahweh in vain if I never say the name Yahweh. That's obviously a letter of the law approach, but that was the thinking at the time. And so the Hebrews and the Jews began to refer to Yahweh not as Yahweh, but as Adonai, which means the Lord. 
which is a title. So they went from a name to a title. And then Jesus comes on this scene and he reveals God, not as a name and not as a title, but as a relationship. Father, shocking, not to you, shocking to them. God is a father, the one true God. Yahweh, the Lord, is our father. And that's how Jesus related to him. And he encouraged us to do the same. Again, remember, eternal life is knowing him. Eternal life is wrapped up in relationship. I lived, a a guy that I grew up with, he, he lived on my street. He called his parents by their first names, Patty and Denny. That's what he called them. I didn't know who they were for a long time. And then I realized that we're his mom and dad. It didn't make any sense to me. It doesn't. It didn't make sense to me. Super familiar, not very relational or intimate. Mom, dad, father, mother, those are relational words. They speak of intimacy and firsthand knowledge and understanding. Do you have that with your father? Do you know that the one true God, the God who is in heaven... It's also your father, and what he desires is for you to know him as such. Remember, that's what eternal life is. It's knowing him and knowing the son that he sent. You know that in your brain. Do you know that in your heart? Not just what's the word that you address God with when you pray. Do you say father or not? But do you live your life aware of the essential father-child dynamic? which is dependence. That's the essential dynamic between a father and his children is the children depend upon the father. And so for many of us as adults, that just seems childish. We've grown out of that. There may be occasions where things crop up in our life that we recognize our need for God, but day in and day out and week in and week out, we kind of feel like we got it. And honestly, we kind of think that's what you're supposed to do as an adult. You're kind of supposed to have it. And then occasionally you may get a diagnosis or a circumstance and you recognize this is beyond my ability to manage and so you look to God as a father. But outside of those isolated and rare events, for most of us, father is a, again, it's, it's a, maybe a label. It's, it's almost more of a cliche than an ongoing reality. James 1 says every, every, every good and perfect gift comes from the father of lights in whom there is no shifting. My heavenly father. I don't live that way. I don't acknowledge that. I don't know if you do. Usually, those gifts to us, they they come in such a way that we don't even recognize. Like we may say, I worked really hard. I busted it in school to get this degree, to get this job, which leads to this paycheck. It didn't feel a whole lot like a gift to me. It felt like a whole lot of work, and this is my reward for, I've earned this. Is there a way for you to trace that back and recognize the gift that God gave you? The intelligence that he gave you. The persistence that he gave you. The opportunities that he gave you. You were born in a time when, you could, when there was such a thing as college and you could go. You had the health to go. All of those things. You can, if we begin, if we're honest with ourselves, we can begin to peel back the layers and And we can get to a point where we can recognize everything good that I have, whether it's internal or external in my life, is truly a gift from my heavenly Father. And that's not just looking back, that's also now and looking forward. Everything I need, I get from him. 
Jesus says, you're evil and you give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? He gives good gifts to those who ask, and every good thing that we have is a gift from him. So if you put those two truths together, what does it look like to begin to live life intentionally as a child whose father is the one true God in heaven? Super practical. What can you do? Start in prayer. And you can begin by just opening prayer, saying, Father, that may seem rote to you, but just... The practice of doing that, beginning to acknowledge that he is your father and you're his child. And that's, again, never a role or a relationship that you grow out of. You don't mature out of being a son or a daughter of God. That's a permanent designation in an eternal relationship. And then I would encourage you to begin to thank God for the good things that he's given you. Every time you pray, name something that you've received from him. It doesn't have to be something you got yesterday. Intentionally look at your own life, internal, external. What are the good gifts that God has given to me? And begin to thank him for that. That will remind you of your need for him and your dependence upon him. And then ask him for what you need. And do this even if you don't feel like you need anything. Your emotion and your experience may say, I don't need anything, I got it. Do it anyway. Acknowledge that everything you need, every good gift comes from him. You may say, I got enough money in the bank to pay the bills. Thank him anyway for daily bread. Do that. Thank him for the job that you have. You may say, as a mom or as a dad, these kids, man, I got them. I know what I'm doing. Thank him for that. And then ask him, God, I need wisdom and revelation to raise these kids well to raise them in knowledge and understanding of who you are, to prepare them for life in the kingdom. Even if you feel like you got it, ask him anyway, because the reality is you need him. Whatever the circumstance is, begin to recognize and acknowledge your need for good gifts from him. It pushes you towards that dependence, which so much of our life draws us away from. What I'm trying to do is help lay a foundation for you, recognizing you're a son or a daughter of God, relating to him as your father. So when those occasional times crop up in your life, when you recognize things are laid bare and you recognize, I can't handle it. I don't have it. There is no cure for cancer or whatever that is for you. And then you're pushed, you're forced to confront your need. You have a foundation of relating to God as a father. That's not the first time. You have a history and a track record of recognizing he's my father and he loves me. Every good thing I have has been given to me from him. He has his track record in my life of giving me what I need so I can trust him moving forward. If you don't have that foundation, when those times come and you have to begin to look to him as a father, he's gonna be a stranger. And that's not the time you wanna find that out. You don't wanna find that out in those moments. So you begin to cultivate that understanding now. Just simply acknowledge when you pray, Father, my Father, the one true God who is in heaven, thank you for these good things that you've given to me. You don't do that once. You do that on every time you pray. Find one or two or three or 12. 
And God, I also want to acknowledge my ongoing need for you. I may think that I've got it, but the reality is I don't. And I recognize I need you in this situation and in this relationship and in this circumstance with this person in this decision. And I, I know that you give good gifts to everyone who asks, and so I'm asking. And I know that every good thing ultimately comes from you. And so I'm looking to you as my source. Let's take a minute and pray. If you're on the ministry teams, you can come forward. So we'll have teams up here. We'll pray with you about whatever needs you came in with. I want to give you two ways of responding. One, if you are aware of a need, if you came in and there was something going on, you've kind of just been waiting on me to quit talking so you can have somebody pray for you, we want you to do that. We want you to come to your father this morning with your need, acknowledging that need, trusting him to meet it. Second, if you wrestle with the whole truth that God is your good father, we want to pray that God would give you grace to begin to relate to him that way. It may be difficult because, for, it doesn't matter. It can be difficult for any number of reasons. It can be difficult for men because I kind of feel like we, anyway, it doesn't matter. It can be difficult for lots of reasons. Whatever your hang-up is, is irrelevant. What matters is acknowledging that before the Lord and coming to him and saying, I need help. I recognize that I'm your son. I'm your daughter. I recognize that you're my father. I know biblically that you're a good father. I don't necessarily relate to you that way. I get it. I'm willing to submit to you as a Lord and master and king. I'm willing to follow you as a shepherd and teacher and guide. I acknowledge that you're my savior, that you're the sacrifice for my own sins. But to live daily in dependence upon you as a father, that's a tough one. If that's where you are, please acknowledge that this morning. Come forward and let these guys pray that God would reveal himself to you in a way that you would understand as your father, good father, heavenly father. So that's our prayer, Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, Paul says... um, It's the Holy Spirit. He he is a spirit of adoption, and by him we're able to call out Abba, Father. So that's the work of the Spirit in us. And Holy Spirit, we want to acknowledge that and ask you to stir that. I ask you to stir that in the hearts of every man and woman and student and, and child in this room, that every one of us would know you as our good Father. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand up. Respond as you will, and then John will dismiss us in about five minutes.